Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Well, as you can tell, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Um, and, 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 you know, what we said last week as we're studying this, this passage in, in Genesis 22 about the sacrifice of Isaac, um, that the only way you can combat this kind of stuff that's going on in our culture is spiritual because it's a spiritual war, as you can tell. I mean, this, this stuff is demonic that you, that you see going on here. And, and um, it goes down to you have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to surrender to the Lord in order to deal with the demonic, the satanic, and the things that are going on in our culture. So what we're going to learn today is total surrender. And uh, it's important for us fighting in a battle uh, or doing the call of God in our lives that we, we understand this concept and we actually live by this, this concept of total surrender. <clears throat> in the, in the, 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 the Ju- uh, Judaism and in rabbinic uh, understanding of this passage. This is a key passage of the binding of Isaac. It's called the Akada. And the Akada has, is just Hebrew for the binding. And this is a big deal, uh, the, one of the high points of Abraham's life, obviously, and the biggest test he faced in his entire life. But from a Christian standpoint, <clears throat> this total surrender by Isaac and Abraham to God's will actually points forward to the future to Messiah and his surrendering to the Father's will and his dying on a cross for our sins. And so what you're going to see today with this total surrender of Abraham and Isaac is, again, the surrendering of the Messiah in the future. And on your way out, if you're interested, I put together a sheet of paper that has about 23 similarities between Isaac and the Messiah. And we called it in theology a typology and the fact that what you're seeing with Isaac will actually point forward to a future fulfillment. That's what we call a typology or a foreshadowing. And I'll, I'll talk about it as I go through and point those, those similarities out. But total surrender is needed, and that's what you're going to see today. So what you're going to see, we, we, we studied this last week. We only studied one, uh, uh, the first two verses of this passage. And just to refresh your mind, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And after these things means that all the tests that Abraham has, has went through up to this point, and now here's the final test, the final proof to see if Abraham will do exactly what God says and surrender that which is most precious to him in order to accomplish God's will for his life. And that will will not only accomplish uh, Abraham's mission in life, but God's mission to, to bless everybody through this, what, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Anyway, he said, then take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we looked at that, and obviously Moriah is uh, where the temple will be uh, or would be uh, eventually built. This is where, obviously, we call this uh, Mount Moriah in English, but it's Moriah in Hebrew, and this is Jerusalem. And so basically, he's going to have Abraham take him to Jerusalem because that's where the sacrifice will happen. Again, pointing forward to the Messiah. 
So we talked about that, we looked at that, and now we're ready to, to move on. But let's, let's understand the principle here before we, we go any further. And the principle is this. God is not explaining to Abraham all that's going to happen. He just tells him to do this. Sacrifice Isaac to me. And, and the principle is that God doesn't want to explain it to us because once he explains it, it would eliminate our faith. If he explained it, that, hey, Abraham, don't worry about this. I'm going to ask you to sacrifice Isaac. Then I'm going to stop you. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, and this is all going to play itself out. No, no. He doesn't tell you. He doesn't tell you and I. He just says, do this, even though it doesn't make sense in many times. I mean, think about in Abraham's mind. In Abraham's mind, he's saying, you're asking me to sacrifice my son. Okay, I get that. But then the the son is what you said, or is who you said the promise is going to go through. Through Through him, the Abrahamic covenant will pass through him. You're asking me to kill him. So how is this going to work? Well, God doesn't give any explanation for it. He just says, do it. And what God is asking Abraham, what he asks us to do, is not to understand what's going on. It's simply to trust his character. Do you and I trust the character of God, that God is all-loving, God is all-powerful, God doesn't lie, God is just, God is holy, God is righteous, and he would never ask anything that would actually uh, create sin in our lives or anything like that, that, that he will work out the good out of it. Do you trust the character of God? See, that's a hard thing for most people to grasp, but especially when he asks them to do stuff that doesn't make sense to them. But that's where faith comes down to. Faith is based on the character of God, and that's what he's doing here. Anyway, so Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So what you see really uh, right away is Abraham responding immediately. He doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't hem-haw around. He instantly goes after the obedience. Says, all right, this is what he wants. I'm going to do it. So he gets up early in the morning, gets everything ready for the burnt offering, and, they go, and he goes. That's the response we see from Abraham. And but's the, but here's the principle. And the principle is very important. That Abraham is willing to surrender to the highest good. And the highest good in the story is God's will. And, and God accomplishing through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Because this Abrahamic covenant will bless everybody of the, of the entire world. And so the call of God is to surrender that which is most precious to you to the highest call. If you do this, if you voluntarily submit to this, what tends to happen is you will start seeing in your life order you'll start seeing sanity come back into your life. And then on your personal level, you will reach new levels of spiritual maturity that will bless other people. That's the concept of surrendering the highest to the highest good. Now, if you look at our culture, they do the opposite. They do not surrender, nor do they sacrifice to the highest good or to God in, that, in this sense. They want to live for total, absolute autonomy. I want to do anything I want to do or feel like I want to do. If I feel like a girl, I'm going to dress like a girl. If I feel like a boy, I'm going to dress like a boy. If I want to go LGBT, I will go LGBT. If I want to change my gender, whatever. What you're seeing 
is that when people refuse to sacrifice their desires, sacrifice their wants, which most of the time are perverted, if they don't do that, what ends up happening to them is they introduce chaos in their own personal lives, but instead of blessing the culture, they introduce chaos into the culture. They introduce conflict. They introduce insanity. They introduce resentfulness and victimization and confusion, which is exactly where our society is when people won't restrain themselves. And we have people that are just as crazier than a bed bug letting mental illness take over our culture. That's what's happening. And what's happening? It's chaotic. It's chaos to live here. Anyway, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So they're going from Beersheba uh, uh, to basically Jerusalem, where Moriah is, and it's a three-day journey. Notice the theme of three days. Again, this is another parallel. What day was Jesus resurrected on? The third day. So you'll see the th- third day theme. And again, three days going is, is a theme carried out through the, new, the Old Testament into the New. And it's carried out, and it's called actually the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so shall the Son of Man be three nights and uh, uh, three days in the heart of the earth and resurrected on the third day. So the third day theme is everywhere, okay? And Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. The idea in the Hebrew, Hebrew concept it's a Hebrew idiom to lift up your eyes or lift up your head. What that means is faith. That's our expression of faith, to lift up your eyes and see something. So Abraham lifts in faith his eyes to Mount Moriah, where the sacrifice of Isaac will be. And he moves into that location. And obviously, you know this is Jerusalem, uh, and this is what Jerusalem looked like, obviously, in Jesus' day. This is the Temple Mount, and the, the, the temple was there, and this is what the structure looks like today. And this will be the place where Jesus sets up his throne to rule and reign from David's throne for a thousand years at the second coming. So Jerusalem, or Mount Maria, is the place of not only sacrifice, but where the king will rule and reign. So this is a significant place spiritually. And we talked about it. Obviously, that Christ was sacrificed on Mount Maria. Just the same as Abraham has taken Isaac to Mount Moriah. Okay, what's the principle? The principle and the application in all of this is this. To answer the call of God on your particular life, and everybody in this room has a call of God on them. God wants something out of you. He wants more out of you. He has gifted you with spiritual gifts and natural talents and everything that in your history is geared to complete a mission in your life. But, Please understand, your mission will only be completed if you're in the right location. The sacrifice of Isaac, the sacrifice of the Messiah, must happen in Jerusalem. It must be on Mount Moriah. It can't be anywhere else in the world. It has to be here. And your call, your call must be in the right place. So, uh, uh, for example... Uh, I'm not called to leave California as much as every fiber in me wants to leave California because it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah here, no doubt about that. But God has told me, you stay put, I need you in ground zero, and I need you to fight until I rapture you home. So you're going to stay here, Brandon, because your call means this location. 
oh, okay. So if I were to pick up and go to Texas or Florida or try to escape California, I wouldn't be able to do my call completely. I would be missing it because I'm not in the right location. So location is a key for everybody to fulfill the will of God. Notice, if you're not in the right location, you will struggle to fulfill the will of God in your life. And it might take years for you to get back to the right location where this will of God can be done. It's a big deal. Please think about it. Whether it's your job, your job is your location, whether it's the place you live, the neighborhood in which you live, the community in which you live, all of that location issue signals to you where your will of God is to be done at. Furthermore, let's continue on. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. Notice Abraham is seeing this as an act of worship. And we will come back to you. Now let me, let me mention something about the young men. The young men are two assistants. But they are to stay behind. Now the two men accompany Isaac with him. So a parallel with this is the two men who were crucified with the Messiah at the same time. So you'll notice the two here represent the two criminals crucified. You'll see the same thing in Joseph. When he's put in jail, there'll be two people in jail with him, right? And so you'll notice that they're always being accompanied with this Messiah type of figure. Now, here's the interesting thing. In this story, the two men, the two uh, 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 servants that uh, Abraham brought stay behind. They stay, they don't go with Abraham and Isaac to Mount Moriah. Why? So it's, it's, a, it's a typology. They don't see the transaction that will happen on Mount Moriah. They are blind to it So because that, that's why they stay behind. Okay. The picture is this. When Christ is on the cross from 12 to 3 o'clock, a transaction happens that only him and the Father see. No one can see it, sees it, and therefore everything goes black. There's a darkness that hits the land from 12 to 3 o'clock. And no one can see this transaction. But this transaction, we know from theology, that the, 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 the Father is actually putting the sins, our sins, on him. And he is bearing our sins and suffering the wrath of God in that time period. And that's a transaction no one sees because of the darkness covering it. So the idea is that two people accompany him, but they don't see the transaction. We take that by faith, the transaction happened, that Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Even though we didn't see the spiritual transaction, it was darkened, and that's the idea. Now notice what he says, and we will come back to you, we. Notice the term we. He's going up there to sacrifice Isaac, but yet he includes Isaac coming back with him. How can he come back with him if he's going to sacrifice him? So what is Abraham thinking? It's this. Hebrews 11 reveals to us what Abraham was actually thinking. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. That's the other link, right? God's begotten son. Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So yes, what Abraham was really thinking is this. Well, 
If he's asked me to sacrifice the child of promise, and this child is supposed to carry on the Abrahamic covenant, I guess God will resurrect him. Now, again, resurrection was a a, a shadowy idea. Job had the concept of resurrection, and Job's the oldest book of the Bible, but no one had ever been resurrected from the dead. I mean, you and I sit and look at history, and we've seen Lazarus and Jairus' daughter resurrected. Obviously, we've seen the Messiah resurrected and glorified. So resurrection is a common understanding for us. But in Abraham's time, this was a rare understanding. It wasn't a known concept per se, uh, and so he believes it. He believes that God has the power to bring back the dead uh, and give them back life. So what's the principle in this? The principle is this. What is Abraham focusing on? Abraham, because of faith, is focusing in on God's power to resurrect instead of what he's asked to give up. Now, that's big, because in, in principle and application, what we tend to do as human beings is look at what God is asking us to give up, and we mourn that loss, and we become embittered, and we become enraged, and we become angry at God that God is asking us to give these things up. And sometimes we don't have any choice. They're just taken away from us, and, and, and things happen to us, and our life, uh, we just continue to lose. But here's what you have to think about. Instead of focusing on everything that you're losing, and that's a reality, you must focus on the power of God in what you will gain back. What do you mean? Well, in this life, if you lose your life, you actually gain your life. You actually get a, a spiritual life. You get an abundant life, okay? But in order to get that, you have to lose. We talked about that last, last week. But in the future... You are promised to be resurrected. You are promised to get back your life. But let me add one more thing. You get your life back a hundredfold. What do you mean? Well, Peter uh, got kind of grouchy with the Lord one time. And he says, hey, man, we gave up all for you. And, and, and Peter, he gave up his fishing industry and his business, and he gave up his family. He left his wife at home and his family at home. And he had to go with the Lord for three and a half years. And basically, Peter was a little grouchy. And I'm actually, he, he, he was a little forward with this. But I mean, I'm glad he asked the question because it helps us. Hey, what do we get out of all of this? And Jesus turned to him and said, look, man, no one leaving all their, their homes and family and, and, and all this other stuff and lands for me. He basically, to paraphrase him, he said, look, you get, a, you get your life back a hundredfold. A hundredfold? Yeah, don't miss that. It's not that you just simply get your life back in the kingdom. You do. You're resurrected. You're without a sin nature, so that won't hurt you anymore. But it's a hundredfold. You understand that you get your life back 100 times over is what he's promising. And I don't know all that entails, but it's more than just getting your life back. It's that and more beyond what you can imagine. So whatever you lose in the life, you have to believe that you get it all back. If you believe you get it all back a hundred times over, what are you afraid to lose? You see what it does to you? What what do you care if you lose anything because you get it all back? They can take everything from you. It doesn't matter. They can take your life. What does it matter? You get it all back anyway. That actually 
frees you of worrying about what you lose. So, so many people get bitter and angry about all the stuff they're losing in this life. And I get it, man. This life takes from you. It'll eventually take your health, and it will take your life if you're not raptured. But you get it back 100 times. That's what Abraham is focusing on. He's not focusing on what he's losing. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Now, again, Isaac is carrying the wood, which is meant for his destruction. He carries it with him. Just as Messiah carries the wood with him to his own sacrifice. You see the picture here? One carries wood. Both are carrying wood. Now, most people, they have a picture that Christ carried the entire vertical and horizontal beams, but that's not what happened in history. What happens in history, the Romans already had holes dug in the limestone, which they put the vertical beam on already. This stayed at the site, the vertical beam. What was taken to Calvary that Messiah holds on his shoulder is what we call the patabulum, the cross beam. Okay? So that's what they would have put on Jesus to hold it as he went forward. He didn't carry the whole cross because it would have been too heavy for any man. The patabulum is about 70 to 100 pounds. Okay, so this is after the cat of nine tails, which most people died, most people uh, after being whipped so many times with the cat of nine tails. So Messiah is actually carrying this, and he falls because of the weight of it, and then Simon of Cyrene helps him to carry the rest of the patabulum the next way. But again, the patabulum is pictured by the wood that Isaac is carrying on his shoulder to the site, okay? Now, one of the things, as you can see, Peter will make the spiritual application that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So it's not just him bearing the wood, he bore our sins. That's a picture of him bearing that, that holding the wood is bearing our sins. He, he held them up. Anyway, to go back, notice what it says, and he took the fire in his hand. So Abraham has fire because it's a burnt offering. And so what you would do is you would use the knife, see the knife and, and the knife, and you would slit the, ro- the throat of the victim, of the animal, and let the b- blood drain out, and that's what would expire the animal's life. That's the shedding of the blood. Then you would light the wood underneath the animal and would burn up the entire animal's body. That's called a whole burnt offering. Okay? There's two transactions. The knife must slice the neck to let the blood bleed, and then the whole burnt offering must be burnt. Now, let's talk about the fire real quick. The fire would light the fire. Okay, but, but in, in biblical terminology, when you're looking at sacrificing, fire represents judgment. So the animal is being judged for someone else's sin. It's a substitute, okay? So fire uh, representing judgment when did the fire come to Jesus on the cross? Well, it happened at 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. From 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., he is suffering the wrath of man. They are mocking him. They're telling him to come down off the cross. And it's just the pure vent and hatred of man towards the Messiah. Then from 12 to 3, you have the wrath of God being poured on him. And that's where the fire, so to speak, comes from. 
Now, interesting enough, during that time of wrath, this is why Messiah will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he is being forsaken because of us, because of our sin. He is feeling the separation in his humanity from God the Father, which he had never felt before. And at that point, once it's over, at three o'clock, he says, I thirst. Why does he say he thirsts? Because when you experience the wrath of God, there's a heat element uh, uh, that comes with it. So for instance, in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus explains a man in hell, the man is asking Father Abraham to dip his finger in water to drop a little drop on his tongue because he says, I am in agony or in torment in this place because judgment is hot. It is fire. That's why it's called the lake of fire. And so Messiah, after going through the wrath of God and feeling the burning, he says, I thirst. And hence the fire. And then the knife. The knife, again, is to slice the neck of the victim to let him bleed out and expire the life. It's for the shedding of blood. What is the knife associated to in Christ's crucifixion? Well, it starts with a cat of nine tails. And I have a, re- a rep- reproduction of a cat of nine tails. This is a Roman reproduction of a cat of nine tails. And at the end of the, the thing, uh, of each strand of leather are metal balls, okay? And the metal balls would come and, and lacerate the skin and cause not only external but internal bruising. So Christ was bleeding already inside um, after this, this scourging. The Romans didn't have any... Didn't have any uh, limit on how much they could scourge you. Uh, Jews had 40 lashes, but they, and they wouldn't do it with ball bearings on the end of it. But the Romans had no, no end. They could just do it as long as they wanted to. And these ball bearings would basically lacerate the back and absolutely destroy the individual. Most people died from that. But anyway, Messiah survives this, obviously. But then the, then the knife that Abraham has is signified by the piercings of the Messiah. This is what caused Messiah to bleed. So this is a reproduction of a Roman nail, of the, uh, an actual Roman nail. It's a reproduction, but it, a Roman nail uh, at the time of Christ was about seven inches, and it, it looked exactly like this. It had two points. You can see the, the head, and then it had a smaller head, and the reason it has a smaller head, so, it, so they can get a wrench and pull this out of the victim when they wanted to get them from the cross. So it has two, two little heads on it. Well, anyway, this went through Messiah in his, in his wrists and in his feet. This is, represents the knife. Furthermore, past that, the shedding of blood also comes with the, the Roman spear. Um, after Messiah is, is dead, just to, to make sure that he is dead so they can get his body off the cross, a Roman spear thrusts through his cavity, um, all through, his, through the, the lung area, all the way to his heart, and pierces the pericardial sac. And as he pulls out, John says, I saw water and blood, which means the pericardial sac around the heart was pierced. He literally is pierced through his heart and pulled out that fluid along with blood that came out of his right side, as John records. That is the representation of the knife in Abraham's hand. Okay, so you, these, these are the parallels. And the two of them went together. So the father and the son are doing this transaction alone. They are the ones doing it, right? But Isaac spoke to, his fa- to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. 
Then he said, look, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac doesn't know at this point that it's, it, he's going to be sacrificed. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, wait a second. Read what this says, because this is important. Do not miss this. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And look what, look what Abraham said. God will provide for himself the lamb. Okay? So God is actually going to be the one that's going to do that. This is a prophecy that didn't come fulfilled in this period of time. It is a prophecy that God will provide for atonement, for propitiation. God will make the sacrifice for us, for humans. That's what he's trying to say. And they continue on. The two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. This is Moriah. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. Now, how, what, it, what it means in order is you would build a rock. Uh, you had to use stones, uncut, and you would put them together to make an altar. And, and then on the top of the altar, you would put the wood on the top. And then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, this is significant. Now Isaac realizes he's the one to be sacrificed. And Isaac willingly lets himself be bound by his father, Abraham. So he binds him. This is why uh, this, is, this is called the binding of Isaac, because he willingly goes to sacrifice himself and be bound. Now, if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Messiah is willing to be bound at that time at the arrest. And as you remember, you recall, Peter tries to prevent the arrest. Do you remember that? Peter pulls out his own sword and he goes for Malchus's head. Now, most people think, well, he just uh, cut his ear off and that's what Peter was aiming at. Peter wasn't aiming at his ear. Peter was aiming to cleave his head in half. That's what Peter was doing. And if Malchus had not moved his head a little bit, Peter would have cut his head right open. It would have split his head. That Peter was Definitely going to defend the Messiah on this one. So Malchus moves, he slices his ear off. Obviously, Messiah heals it. But to paraphrase Messiah, Peter, don't you understand? I can call 12 legions of angels to come to my rescue. I don't need that. Peter, let this happen. And if, if to paraphrase them. And so Messiah allows himself to be bound. And you'll see this all through the Gospels. They bound him, and they took him to the high priest, and they bound him and took him to a pilot. Bound. It, it, again, it's a reiteration of Isaac's binding that he willingly allows this to happen. Jesus is in full control of the situation. Now, notice what he says. And they laid him on the altar upon the wood. So Isaac goes upon the wood and lays down. Now, what you see from Isaac is he's not resisting. He is not protesting. And a lot of the pictures show him as a little boy or a, a young teenager. He's not. Isaac is about 37 years old. If he wants to fight back and protest, he has the power to overpower Abraham, who's in his hundreds. So this is not a matter of a little, a little boy being forced to do anything. 
The binding of Isaac shows that a 37-year-old man was willing to lay down his life for what God wanted. Oh, this is interesting. Here's another parallel. The age of Isaac and the age of the Messiah. Jesus is born in about 6 or 7 B.C. He is crucified in April of A.D. 30, which makes him about 36 or 37 years old, the same age as Isaac. You can't get any closer than that. They're, they're both the same age when they're sacrificed. Furthermore, he lays upon the altar. This is the same as when Messiah allows himself to be crucified as he lays down on the wood and allows himself to be nailed to a cross. He doesn't resist. He doesn't protest. He lays there splayed out and, and in order to do this, they have to dislocate at least one of his shoulders to get to the location of where the crucifixion of one of the nails shall be. So one of his shoulders is actually dislocated. His bones are not broken, but he goes into a dislocation. So the pain of dislocation in his shoulders is now happening as he willingly opens himself up to be sacrificed and then nailed, obviously, in his feet as well. What's the principle? With all this drama that's being played out with Isaac and pointing to the Messiah, there's something here. Some of the tests that God gives us are meant to cause us to fellowship in the sufferings of the Messiah. What do you mean? Well, what Abraham is doing and what he's experiencing is to some limited capacity in his humanity experiencing that which God himself, the Father, will experience in the future as he gives up his son to lost humanity, to be sacrificed for lost humanity. Now, again, you're talking about the infinite versus the finite. And so none of us, not even Abraham, can experience fully the infinite a sacrifice of, of the Father giving up his son for us. But we can understand it to some degree in, in our humanity. And that's what Abraham is experiencing, is that suffering that the father is experiencing by giving up his son. Okay, so some of the tests that God will put us through is for that very purpose, that you can feel what Messiah felt. Now, why is that important? Because if you can feel what Messiah can feel, you, it actually creates spiritual growth in you so that you can have the mind of Christ and you can think like Christ and you can behave like Christ. What do you mean? Have you ever been betrayed by someone very close to you and they stabbed you in the back? Someone that you trusted, someone that you loved has betrayed you. you if anyone can say, yes, I have felt that pain. It was almost unbearable, Brandon, to, to feel that pain. Good. Because now you know what it's like when Judas betrayed Messiah. One of his 12 disciples that he poured his life into gave everything for Judas. And Judas sells them out for 30 pieces. Now you know what Messiah felt like. And that right there connects you with the fellowship of the sufferings of the Messiah. That's what we're talking about. And this is what this is doing. You experience that which God experiences. 
And boy, howdy, when you experience that, it changes you. You're no longer, you're not the same person anymore. You've changed. Changed for the better. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, guess who the angel of the Lord is? The very one who will sacrifice his own life. The, 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 the typology of Isaac says, stop, stop. That's Jesus right there. Called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he, so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Why did he stop him? Because you know what? I wanted you to get as close as possible so, I could, so you could prove your faith. It's not that God doesn't know that Abraham won't pass this test when he says, for now I know you fear God. He already knew this. That's an anthropomorphism. God is speaking in a human way. But what's happening here? Now I know that you fear me. It's the idea is that now you have demonstrated publicly that you fear me. I already knew you feared me. I already knew you had the faith. But I wanted to demonstrate this publicly, not for you, but for all peoples of all times, Abraham. Because your faith is the kind of faith I need from everybody. The kind of faith that's willing to sacrifice to the higher good. Oh, at this point, the writer James, in James chapter 2, will then call that after this event, Abraham will now get the term friend of God. Friend of God. Now, people sing songs that they're a friend of God, but that's not true. Not every believer is a disciple. Believers have to cross the line and go into discipleship. Not everybody is a disciple. Then past discipleship, very few are a friend of God. Now, what does it take to be a friend of God? First of all, you have to be willing to pass the ultimate test. You have to be willing to give up that which is most precious to you for the call of God on your life. And if you can do that, and you can make that sacrifice, then you will become a friend of God. But a friend of God doesn't mean that you're, you're already friends with God in that sense. What it means is a public title for people. That's what it means. What do you mean? When people now look at Abraham, they definitely can see from his actions, his expression of faith, and, and that he fears God and is a friend of God. Everybody in the world knows that today. You talk to people around the world, who's Abraham? He's the father of faith. Everybody knows that. That's the idea, is that you become a friend for other people. Other people see it in you. Oh, this is not a secret Christian. This is a friend of God Christian. This is a, friend, a, a, a Christian that's willing to sacrifice their life for God. Whoa, that one's different. That's right. So it's not so much for God, it's for a witness to other people, that term. And that's what happens here. So the principle then that you see demonstrated that by Abraham is he's not going to place the gift of God above God. Isaac is a gift of God. He was born miraculously. Abraham and Sarah are old. She was barren. She couldn't have a child. This is a child of, of a miracle that was given to him. And Abraham will not turn the child into an idol. 
It's a gift, and he keeps it as a gift. And if God wants the gift back, God can take the gift back. And, and Abraham keeps the priority. And that's important for you and I to finish the call of God. When we start putting the gifts of God as a higher priority than God, you're going to get out of whack real quick. Look what Jesus said about your own family. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is he saying? This is not a salvation passage. What is being worthy? It means being worthy to be a disciple. Not a believer, but a disciple. He's basically saying you can't be my disciple if you put your family above me. If you put your son or your daughter, or you put your mom and dad above Jesus, you got your priorities fouled up. You don't understand. And because, because of that, you're not willing to sacrifice the highest to me. You must be willing to sacrifice your own son and daughter, your own mother and father to me. I must be number one. And if you can do that, then you're worthy to be my disciple. But until you get to that point, you're not worthy yet because your priorities are messed up. And Abraham is the father of faith showing us how to do that. Don't take the gifts and turn them into idols. Don't put them above God is what he's saying. Now watch this. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there, there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. What did Isaac ask? Where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. But this is not a lamb. This is a ram. It is a substitution. And you can use a ram for a burnt offering. And you could use a goat. You can use an ox. You can use a, a lamb or a sheep. But this one is a ram. It's different. But notice what happened to it. Through God's providence, God provided, didn't he? He provided a ram. And this ram, his horns are caught in a thicket bush that's locked his head in and he can't move. He is trapped and the ram can't get away. He can't run. He's locked in, he's trapped. And so it's easy pickings for Abraham. Abraham just goes over there, gets him, and takes them to be the offering. So God has provided. But remember, they kept looking for a lamb. But this is a ram. Now, one of the connections with the, this ram that's locked in a thicket bush, there's a connection here I want you to see. It's connected to the Messiah. Notice it's the head that's stuck in a thicket bush. It's a thicket It's the crown of thorns. Now, the thing about the crown of thorns, most of us think of a, a, a ring of thorns that going around the brow and around the head. But more than likely, what we understand from archaeology and what the Romans did, again, they didn't do this to everybody, please understand. They didn't have the time to make a perfectly ring. So the theory uh, 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 behind this is they just fashion something as a cap, so to speak, not so much a crown, because that would be very intricate to do something like that. As they just fashioned something very quickly and then stuck it on the Messiah's head as a cap that represented a crown. So the thorns won't only hit the sides and the brow, but it hit on the top too. And, and, and so this is the concept of the ram having its, hand, its head stuck 
Now, the difference between the ram is the ram can't move. Messiah is not moving because he has surrendered. He is bound, and he's willing to let them put the crown on him. He's willing to hit them and let them hit. He's willing to let them pull his beard. He's willing to let them pierce him. He won't move because any time he moves, he's going to not be the official sacrifice. And so he's there letting them do this to him because he has been bound by his own volition. Man, don't miss that. Now remember, this is a ram, not a lamb. Abraham and Isaac are asking, where's the lamb, where's the lamb? And Abraham says he will provide a lamb one day. Let's go back, look what it specifically says. Where is it? My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Right? That comes to fulfillment when John the Baptist sees Messiah and says, behold, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Abraham said this 2,000 years before Messiah and Isaac said the same thing and the last Old Testament prophet John says, there he is, Abraham, there's the one. He is walking right towards us. It finally gets fulfilled in the days of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. Isn't that beautiful? Amazing. Because it was a ram, not a lamb. Ah, there we go. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. Notice the word, instead of his son, a substitutionary. Oh, this is where we get the concept of a substitutionary atonement. In God's economy of salvation, someone can die for someone else as a substitute. An innocent victim can take on the sins of the individual, and the innocence is then given to the individual, and that's why God started with animals, because animals don't sin. Okay, so, they're, 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 they, so that's where the innocence of the animal could, could cover the person temporarily, and the sins would be conveyed on the animal. Picturing, obviously, the Messiah. That Messiah could take upon himself the sins of the world and in an exchange give us his righteousness and forgive us our sins. Now, how does that happen? There's two things. Notice the shedding of blood of the animal, and then the burnt offering. This is two transactions, and Messiah accomplished both. So the shedding of the blood came at the cross from nine o'clock to three o'clock. He is bleeding out. Uh, The lambs would be slaughtered at nine, and then the lambs would be slaughtered at three o'clock. So the shedding of the blood is happening at the right time, at the right place. But then Messiah must also die. He just can't simply shed his blood. He must also die. So the shedding of the blood is for the forgiveness of sins, but the death represents the whole burnt offering, which means that there's an exchange that happens between our sins going upon him and his righteousness coming to us. That's what the death represents. So so shedding the blood, forgiveness, and the exchange that happens. And that's where you get the word instead of. Instead of us, It was him. That's the idea. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. This is where we get the word Yahweh Yira, which could be translated, the Lord will see to it, 
or the Lord will provide. Lord will provide is typically the way you translate that. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it was. It was provided 2,000 years later in Abraham's life and in all of our lives with the Messiah. Okay, so what's happened now? The blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was provided by God. There was three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. It was um, a, a, a Davidic ruler who would eventually come out of the seed of the Jewish people. We got that. That's Messiah. He will rule and reign on David's throne. Then there's the land aspect with Israel occupying their land. But then the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is the blessing aspect, which gives salvation to the goyim. Not only to the Jews, but the goyim. That's me and you. The goyim, the Gentiles. And so Messiah, is his exchange gives salvation to all. And that's, this is all pictured by Abraham giving Isaac for the good of the Abrahamic blessing. That's what he's willing to do. What's the principle? Well, here's the thing. Provision comes to those who express faith and obedience. Provision will not be provided for those who are disobedient and lack faith. And what happens? The provision will be at the right place, at the right time, and the right amount, and the right manner. Demonstrated by the ram being provided and also being demonstrated by the Messiah. All four categories are complete. So you have to be at the right place, you have to be at the right time, and the right amount will give it. And, and, and it won't come anything before or after, and it'll be just the right amount that you need and in the right manner. Now think about this. Messiah's atonement has to come in the right amount. What do you mean? Well, a man simply can't die for your sins and my sins. But God can't die because God's the eternal one. So how does God going to, going to make a sacrifice for humanity if he can't die? Well, the second person of the Trinity can become a man and take on an additional nature. And now we have one person in two natures, the God-man. The man, Jesus, can die. And that, that blood is human blood, and that's a real human death. But because he's God, that makes his blood and his death have eternal value. Right? That's how it's satisfied. So it's all put together at the right place, the right time, the right amount, and the right manner. All found in the Messiah. Now, watch this and we end here. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you. This is a, a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore, representing the Jewish descendants that exist today and eventually into the Messianic kingdom. Uh, and then, and, and he says, and your descendants, the Jews, shall possess the gate of their enemies, that one day Israel will be the head of the nations, not the tail. He will finally deliver the Jews from Gentile oppression, and that will happen at the second coming, and then Israel uh, uh, will be the head of the nations at that point in time, no, no longer under Gentile control. That's future. But again, this is a reiteration. And in your seed, all the nations, all the goyim, the Gentiles of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And because of that, 
Obviously, the blessing of the Messiah's free gift of salvation comes to all of us, and we represent that blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, here's the question. Why tell Abraham this again? He has already told him this. Why is God reiterating this to him after this has happened? Do not miss this. This is very important for you and I. It's the assurance of the future. Well, what do you mean? Well, when he told Abraham at the beginning, in chapter 12, in the beginning of the journey, that Abraham, I'm going to do this for you, it was all theoretical that God would provide, God would lead, God would ensure his presence with him, that God would make sure all this happened. It was all theoretical. But now Abraham has lived a life with God and now has experienced the provision. He's experienced the presence of God. He's experienced the plan of God. So there's something that has changed in Abraham. And it's this concept. The test, the final test for you and I will not be a test of, the, uh, of theory. It will be a test of experience with God, which is a different kind of knowledge, which is highlighted in the Greek. You can have theology knowledge, and then you have experiential knowledge of actually experiencing the theology. And that's where God wants to get you. He doesn't want you just to simply have all this theology in your head, but no practical experience with it. So in order to do that, he has to test you so that you can see him work in the impossible situations, that you can see him provide in the impossible situations, that you can see the miracles that he provides, that you can see the provision and his presence and everything else that he provides. And that way, when you pass those tests, it gives you an assurance and an unshakableness and a confidence that you can have that no one can move you from. Right? But if you want that, there's only one way to that. And you must be willing to surrender that which is most important to you in order to experience God providing for you. That's the only way you make it. If you want it, he invites you to join him and fellowship in the sufferings of the Messiah so that he can make you as bold as a lion. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn in your your scripture about what Isaac and Abraham did. Amazing things. Amazing surrender to your will. Not knowing all the outcome and seemingly contradicted what you had called them to do. But they believed. And that's a great example for us because you're gonna call us to do things that don't make any sense. We're gonna lose things and it's just gonna look awful and it's gonna look miserable but at the same time you're, you're, you're testing us to see if whether or not we're gonna believe in you and trust you for all that you can provide. And Father, I just pray if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith 
in understanding the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah, that he died on a cross for their sins, bore their wrath on that cross, was buried and rose on the third day to give everlasting life to all the Goyim, both Jew and Gentile, for anyone who believes. I pray they would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.